Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Bienvenidos, bitches, and thank you for listening. (laughs) Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied, white dudes. No, they just aren't. Uh, (laughs) Nobody we talk about was at January 6th. Now, there are many (laughs) well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news I've been telling you this for years. The news is racist. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white. It's okay. She's one of the good ones. We <laughs> forget her. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. Yes, please support our sponsors. Support our sponsors, y'all. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Oh my God. This is why she's one of the good ones, y'all. Fix her a plate. Get that woman a plate. <laughs> so our our goal is to do this gig full time so we mm-hmm. can bring you more delicious content and patron only content. But yes. unfortunately, the only way we can do that is if the podcast is able to support us financially. And anything you can do to help us reach that goal is absolutely appreciated. Amen, amen, amen. Also, if you can't support us financially, Tell your friends, yeah. rate us. Um, yeah. That helps the show grow and helps people like Tyler Perry down the street find out about us. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm just, I'm just kidding. Post about us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So uh, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Samuel Little. You Hang guys- on. I have a sound effect. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You guys 
has been asking for us to cover this guy for a long time. A lot and, of years. Uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. now here we go. Uh, Samuel Little was a serial killer who confessed to having committed 93 murders between 1970 and 2005, at least 50 of which have been verified by law enforcement. He was convicted of four murders, some of which were solved using DNA analysis. All right, but before we get into it, how you doing? Uh, not so great. Oh, my friend, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on? Well, you know, the Supreme Court is uh-huh. verging into... Basura. Radical mm-hmm. right territory, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. my work situation. Everyone's quitting, <laughs> and oh. I'm left holding the bag, so I'm struggling. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm. So, yeah, that's hard. It's, it's hard. hard. But yeah. on the bright side, we were on true crime binge with Bob Ruff, so check Fuck that yeah. out. Yeah, and there's an article coming out about us in Podcast Magazine, and mm-hmm. uh, both of those interviews were the most fun interviews we've done so far. We had a really good time I, talking. To I will, I Bob will Ruff. say, yeah. I will say, those were they were relaxed. We were laughing our asses off. Yeah, um, and it was just fun, and they were cool. They were they were cool dudes. They were very cool dudes. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, spoiler alert, Bob Ruff is, is a white man. And, uh, the dude who interviewed us for podcast magazine is also white. And they all, they all, what was cool to me is they acknowledged it. Yeah. And also they were, they, they needed they were like hold classes for the interested and, and willing to like, yeah. they were like, yeah, I'm up, I'm up to learn. I, yeah. I, I get, I got blind spots and it was just really rad yeah. um, to talk to people who weren't, um, uh, defensive who were just, and, yeah, they weren't yeah. defensive or antagonizing us. They were just like, what do you got? And it was just fun. And yeah. we hope you guys they were um, awesome. check those out and like, yeah. Them. yeah. Um, yes. The world is a dumpster filled with shit. And set ablaze. Yep. May I be excused? <laughs> um, but hang in there, Fred. Thanks. We'll 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 make we'll make it or or not. I don't know. Something's gonna happen either way. Yeah, either way, uh, it'll get better or or well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we got to do a lot of really cool shit recently, and yeah. hopefully, we get to do plenty more. Yeah. Um, it's been. Uh, I just we're we're back from a break and I'm like energized. I'm so excited to be back on the mic with you, um, and it, to see where we've come since June of 2018. Yeah, yeah, true. Wow. Yeah, can you believe I it? I don't believe it. I don't New believe York it. Times, yeah. Harper's Bazaar, <laughs> CrimeCon, this CrimeCon, that, all these amazing oh, yeah. um, um, opportunities, opportunities, yeah. and friends, and yeah. community, and. Um, it, like we're educating people, helping, helping people learn while also having fun talking about true crime and really, yeah. really bad stuff, uh, really bad deep. hombres. Pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a blast. And Beth, if you had never bothered me at work <laughs> to do this so podcast. So when are we going to do that podcast? Yeah. So when oh are we going to do that podcast? <laughs> like, this girl, this woman is real serious about doing a podcast. Okay. Uh, and here we are and I am overjoyed. Uh, so anyway, this is, yeah, it's, it's amazing to be here. So it is. Yeah. Um, hang in there, my friend. Um, we can do it if we stick together. (laughs) I think. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, so now it's time to get into some listener. Hello, angels. Thank you. Ah, yes. What the hell is in that bag? What you got in that bag, (laughs) Beth? What's in the bag? (laughs) Well, I just wanted to say thank you to Kimmy Livy, Maria, and Akila Oda for your five-star reviews. Oh, yes. Excuse me, y'all. Y'all got some hip-hop air horns coming your way. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, we got some new patrons over the break. Yeah. Um, and we are so grateful for all of you who've been rocking with us throughout yeah. the past four years and over million plus Daniel downloads and all the stuff. Um, and for the new ones, here are your tunes. Um, I hope you don't hate them. Real quick, your names are Rebecca D, Brooke C, Amanda P, and Christina W. Okay, Rebecca. Shittily baba Thanks, Rebecca. 
Okay. And um, Brooksy, this is for you. Thank you, Brooke, you know. Thank you, Brooke, you know. And I'm telling every fruity, all the fruities. I'm telling all the fruities. Thank you, Brooksy. Um, <laughs> and Amanda P. And if we only could, we'd make a damn good pod. And we'd get him to swap our places. Be running up that road. Be running up that hill. True coming with Amanda. Yeah, yo. <laughs> been really into stranger things over the break oh my gosh okay and uh christina this is for you oh christina a patreon we're getting on and we've got you girl to rely on so tell me when the true crime begins Christina's tired and we need podcasts not to end. <laughs> and those are for you. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> for supporting our show. <laughs> so um, real quick, before we get into our episode, it's been a while since we brought this up, but we'd like to take a moment to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color and marginalized folks. Yeah. Um, true crime is difficult to talk about or hear about sometimes. And race and oppression and all those things, women's rights, all those things can be difficult to talk about too. Yeah. But it's just part of the world that we live in. And as global citizens, we all have to talk about this stuff and we all get to talk about this stuff. And we want this to be a safe space where we can have fruitful discussions about all of the things. And we are all learning all the time. Sometimes we will make mistakes, but we just come to it, learn from it and keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy selves. Yeah. Can't talk about it. Can't, can't, can't fix anything if we don't talk about it. So right. that's what we're here yeah. to do. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Or call us at 602-935-6294. All right. Let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the story when we come back. All right. So we're back. Oh, I was just thinking about at CrimeCon and we met Janet. And um, do you remember Janet? She called, she called, um, and I, I had been answering the oh, phone because yeah. I didn't want to miss any vendors. And um, we talked and it was even lovelier to meet her and her wife in person. Oh, that was awesome. And yeah. It was, she's been a day one and she said something that I will never forget. She was like, I've been with you guys since you started the show and you would say, we've had this, let's take a quick quick break in the show since the beginning it's in the script and she was like you guys used to take a break but there would be no there commercial be nothing there <laughs> oh yeah. so miss janet yeah. if you're out there listening we just we we love you and all yeah. our day ones anyway yeah. we appreciate y'all so much so we're back remind us beth who is our subject today our subject today is Samuel Little, a black man and the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history that we know of. Oh, because there could be more? There could be more. Serial killers or victims? Serial killers and victims. Uh -huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bars. Okay. OG of true crime is flexing everyone. Uh, now it's time to get into some uh, stats. <laughs> All right. So, a.k.a. Samuel Little uh, also went by Sam McDaniel, Samuel McDowell, Willie Mae Clifton uh, and Willie Lewis. Um, so he lured women with uh, promises of money, drugs, doing drugs. It's been a long time since I said that. Yeah. I had to stop saying it in my house because my kids were repeating They, it. they were starting this. <laughs> yeah. <it>. Whoops. <laughs> Uh, his uh, his M.O. was to sucker punch the victim, then strangle her to death. Without any obvious signs of trauma, such as a uh, stabbing or gunshot wound, many of the deaths were attributed to drug overdoses, accidents, or natural causes. He once punched a woman so hard that he broke her spine. Jesus. Wow. 
Uh, Little chose to kill marginalized and vulnerable women who were often involved in sex work and struggling with poverty and addiction. And he ad- he admits to this. Like, yeah. this was very intentional. Yep. Um, their bodies sometimes went unidentified and their deaths uninvestigated. Although Little confessed to total, a total of 93 murders, he was only convicted of the murders of Carol Eileen Elford, Guadalupe Duarte Apodaca, Audrey Nelson Everett, and Denise Christie Brothers. Rest in power, Queens. Authorities eventually put together a timeline that tracked Samuel Little's activities across the country since his birth. It is 24 pages long. Yikes. Unfortunately, that's a lot of pages. He had too many victims to name, um, which is... um, and t- that's too many stories for us to cover. Yeah. Um, but please check out our links in the show notes to find out more about the victims. Yeah. Um, and uh, with that said, we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Little was born in Georgia, but brought up in Lorraine, Ohio. Lorraine is located in northeastern Ohio on Lake Erie at the mouth of the Black River, about 30 miles west of Cleveland. Cleveland rocks. Yeah. Um, so the first historical records of Native Americans Americans in Ohio came from French missionaries who entered into the region in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Entered into the region seems uh, too benign for what really happened. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So from these missionaries, historians know that six major groups of Native Americans lived in Ohio and its neighboring states. The Shawnee in southern Ohio, the Seneca Cayuga in central and northwest Ohio, the Lenape in eastern Ohio, the Wyandot in northern Ohio, the Ottawa in northwest Ohio, and the Miyama in western Ohio. French land surveyors and fur traders had contact with Native Americans for many years, trading guns and weapons for furs and other supplies to send back to Europe. However, France never had permanent settlers attempting to farm and live in Ohio, so the French traders and Native Americans lived more or less peacefully for decades. Okay, Uh, but in the mid-18th century, the British began to compete with French traders. British surveyors began to move into what would become Ohio and Kentucky and to threaten Native American land much more aggressively than the French had. Not to mention they carried a shit ton of diseases. Yeah. Anyway, there were many struggles between France and Britain leading to the Seven Years' War, known in North America as the French and Indian War, which took place from 1753 to 1763. The Native Americans, though disenchanted with the French, sided with them as they preferred them to the British. But the British won the French and Indian War and assumed control over all former French lands east of the Mississippi River. Consequently, treatment of Native Americans in Ohio began began to change for the worse. So this was intended as a, as a culture corner. So um, Negro soldiers loyal to either colonizer side, there, there were um, black soldiers who were on the French side and on the British side, um, fought and were loyal to either colonizer side, all hoping that by contributing to the white fight, they could finally earn their liberation. This time I'm going to do I'm going to show yeah. them that I could do this. And it, it, it still hasn't happened. Anyway, although throughout black people and indigenous people's history together within the Americas, there are more stories of acceptance and kindness towards each other. However, it should also be noted that there are stories of the two antagonizing each other because of these wars created by the white people, right? Um, they had to go in and do a job and essentially kill each other. I just yeah. wanted to point that out. Yeah. And there are accounts of Native Americans locating escaped enslaved people to return them to the white human traffickers who owned them, or in other instances, black soldiers obeying white folks' orders and helping to remove natives from their lands in the name of imperialism. It's crazy when you think of indigenous folks as people whose land was stolen and the black soldiers who were stolen from their land yeah that my edges yeah can i have them back please (laughs) wow (laughs) that that last bit blew me away um white people began to move into and settle in the western lands provoking a series of wars that eventually pushed native americans further west before 1830 various native american tribes had voluntarily moved west uh those tribes had negotiated treaties and handled the terms and details on their own Then the Indian Removal Act was signed into law by President Andrew Jackson, your favorite. (laughs) 
on May hate him so 18, much. 1830. It gave the president pow- the power to force Native American tribes to move to land west of the Mississippi River. The Native Americans in Ohio were forced to give up their land claims and were removed from their homes to locate to Kansas and Oklahoma, where they were promised, quote unquote, better land. It wasn't better. Mm-mm. Many Native Mm-mm. American people died along the way. Yeah. And then also when they got there, they were f- moved even more. So yeah. Um, and some of them were moved to reservations that were already being inhabited by other mm. Native American tribes. Mm. So it, it was just it was a clusterfuck. It was just it was terrible. Just, just a mess. And still, the United States has not reckoned with this any of this genocide any of this land theft yeah Yeah. um so happy fourth of july yeah no (laughs) (laughs) so the the last native american nation to leave ohio were the wyandot who were removed to a reservation in kansas in 1843 although there were numbers of individual native americans throughout the state who remained in ohio as of the 20th century there are no Native American reservations and no federally recognized Native American tribes in Ohio. That is crazy. I, I can't even believe it. Yeah. I can't wrap my mind around it. This this is their, their land. Their land. Yeah. And there's not nothing to speak of essentially on the record yeah. um, for present day uh, as far as representation yeah. in Ohio. That's fucked up. Yep. God, I hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> So Lorraine was first known as Black River, and it was incorporated as the village of Charleston in 1836 and then renamed in 1874 after Lorraine County, which in turn had taken its name from the province of Lorraine, France. Lorraine is Ohio's 10th largest city and the second largest in the greater Cleveland area and the largest in Lorraine County. Cleveland is in Cuyahoga County. Hmm. Yeah, not sounds like if I were to go there, I'd probably need to bring a whole suitcase full of seasonings um, <laughs> in case I had to eat something. I, I think there's a lot of black people living there now. Oh, OK. Yeah. That makes I think, sense. I think you'd be all right. <laughs> OK. Whew. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Don't play with me about my seasonings now. Uh, so prior to the Civil War, Ohio was a leading state for enslaved black people traveling um, the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad was a network of people, both black and white, allyship, y'all, who offered shelter and aid to people escaping slavery from the South. Specific dates of its existence are unknown, but it operated from the late 18th century through the Civil War. The Ohio River is the boundary of the Midwestern and Southern United States. However, crossing the Ohio River was no guarantee of freedom. Actually, no land in the United States was safe because Fugitive Slave Acts were passed by the federal government, which authorized local governments to seize and return escapees to their owners and imposed penalties on anyone who aided in their flight. Hmm, this sounds awfully familiar to what's in the news lately with um, women, women's rights. Yeah. Um, how anybody who aids um, and, somebody fleeing yeah. something really fucked up yeah. um, can, can get, uh, in trouble. get into trouble. Yeah. God damn America. (laughs) Uh, So the goal was to get to Canada. In Ohio, their final stop was a Lake Erie port community in the north from which they could escape to Canada. Lorraine became known as Station 100 of the Underground Railroad. For some people, it was their last stop until freedom. Captain Aaron Root, who sailed from Lorraine, made extra room for escaped enslaved people on ships crossing Lake Erie. Ohio became a state in 1803. Although slavery was not allowed in Ohio as part of its constitution, Black people were not treated as equals to white people in the new state. Due to their racist beliefs and concerns about economic competition, many white Ohioans were not willing to grant rights to Black people. As a result, the Ohio legislature launched a coordinated campaign to prevent fugitive slaves and freed Black people from settling in the state, passing Black laws to discourage them. Um, wow. Not willing to grant rights. No. Nope. But why? 
what does it do to you? Because um, they didn't want the competition and they're they're racist fucks. That's why. I guess it's not a zero-sum game, you fools. <laughs> uh, enacted between 1804 and 1807, Ohio's black laws sought to restrict the movement and freedom of black people already living in the state. So they also denied all black people the right to public education and required black people to register with local authorities and prove their freedom on demand. Within 20 days of arriving in Ohio, black people seeking residence there were required to post a $500 bond guaranteed by two white men. Other laws restricted black people from competing economically with white Ohioans. An 1807 law fined any white person for hiring a black person who did not possess proof of freedom. The laws also limited their rights to marry white people and to gun ownership. This also reminds me, again, I keep hearing, especially a lot, lady, late, lady, listen, lady, <laughs> lately, uh, this isn't our country. We, you know, this is not America. We don't do this. But I, this reminds me a lot of how we treat immigrants. Yeah. Show me your papers. Right. Um, are you registered to be here? Do you belong here? Yeah. And um, it's just... Oh, so they also <laughs> prohibited black people from I'm going to be so mad. I'm going to be shouting by the end of this episode. They, they also prohibited black people from testifying in cases involving white people as parties. As a result, for the next four decades, white people could act with impunity in filing baseless civil lawsuits against black people barred from testifying to defend themselves. That's fucked up. Ugh, the worst. Um, and again, not that different from how the courts operate today. And committing crimes against Black people f f uh, with no fear that the victim or any Black witness would be permitted to give evidence against them. Mm. This law made Black people vulnerable to exploitation and abuse and ensured that they could not rely on the courts for protection or justice. During this period, the Colored American, a Black newspaper in Cincinnati, reported numerous examples of white people swindling money for from black people and also highlighted cases in which authorities failed to prosecute white on black violence after this law kept black eyewitnesses from testifying. I'm just going to insert a thought here. Um, I've heard sometimes people, sometimes other brown and black immigrants look down on African-Americans because it might appear that black Americans have been granted so much because they're just they're you're born here you're born in the land of the free the home of the brave man <laughs> um but while that could be true <laughs> um imagine it making absolutely all these didn't efforts start that way no but imagine making all of these efforts right because uh, what what it is is African Americans were born here, and then Black and Brown immigrants had to make the journey to get here, and then once they get here, they have to do all this work to make it. Right. But Black people already uh, African Americans are already here, already here, yeah. so you, you already overcame that hurdle. But imagine oh, being here, and every time you take steps forward, everything you built gets burned to the ground. Yeah. Um, and um, stripped away from you. So progress is intentionally stifled. Kind of strips you of hope. Yeah, you are a particular type of, of Black uh, uh, when you are an African-American, as opposed to um, an, a black, a, a black or brown immigrant from another place who um, may not necessarily face the same hurdles in the same way. Right. There we go. Yeah. It's just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. 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 So um, anyway, Culture Corner, I'm done. In 1841, <laughs> after two white men murdered a black man named Charles Scott in his home, a white judge relied on the law to prohibit the Mr. Scott's widow, an eyewitness to the murder, from testifying at the trial. Although the men were convicted after the judge admitted the testimony of a different eyewitness whom the judge deemed wide enough. Oh my God. Jeez. The testimony law, which prioritized white supremacy over justice was on the books for 42 years and was not repealed until 1849. Man, that is fun. Injustice anywhere yeah. is injustice everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The black laws and other policies did, did deter some African Americans from settling in Ohio. 
But Lorraine's location next to Lake Erie and the early arrival of the B&O Railroad in 1871 made the city a hub for industry. And by the latter half of the 19th century, many black settlers had chosen to come to the area. Although the black laws were finally abolished in 1886, woo! There were still unwritten social rules dictating black lives in Ohio, such as where they could sit in a theater, where they could go, and who they could associate with. At the beginning of the 20th century, as World War I began, there was a shortage of workers in industrial jobs in the North, Midwest, and Western urban areas. Northern recruiters in Black newspapers encouraged Black people to leave the South for the North and the West. Known as the Great Migration, it is normally broken up into two migrations. The first Great Migration, which occurred from 1910 to 1940, and the second Great Migration from 1940 around when Samuel Little was born, to 1970. The two are separated by the low levels of migration during the Great Depression. Between the years of 1916 to 1970, more than 6 million Black people relocated from the rural South to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. However, their new lives did not come without difficulties. Men's jobs were usually in dangerous and strenuous working conditions, while women had trouble finding work. There was competition for housing, along with racism and prejudices, and rents surged as cities became increasingly crowded. Lorraine and Cleveland both saw large increases in their African-American population during the second Great Migration as Black folks arrived looking for better opportunities at the plants operating in Lorraine. During World War II, Lorraine's shipyard was put to work by the government to build the USS Lorraine, a warship. The United States Steel Mill began as the Johnson Steel Company in 1894. It stretches for nearly three miles on the city's south side. These Hmm. mills operated in the city from 1895 to 16 and employed thousands of local residents. Lorraine also became home to a Ford Motor Company assembly plant, which operated from 1958 to 2005. Oh, interesting. Uh, Lorraine's non-white population in 1940 was less than 2%. By the 1950 census, it was nearly 5%. The 2010 census shows Lorraine at 17.6% for persons who identify as Black or African American alone, and 5.4% that identify as two or more races. Lorraine's poverty level is above the national average, but lower than Cleveland's. Fun fact, novelist and Nobel laureate Toni Morrison was born in Lorraine. Round of applause for Tony Morrison. Un aplauso. Un aplauso to the goat. Yes, indeedy. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. My name is Bill Huffman. 
and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. All right. Well, now we're going to get into the early life of Samuel Little. So Samuel Little was born on June 7th, 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia, a small town about 100 miles south of Atlanta. By the way, it's not pronounced Atlanta. It's pronounced Atlanta. 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 Don't say the T's. Atlanta. 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 Okay. Yes. There you go. So details from his childhood were unclear. His mother, Bessie Mae Little, was 16 when she gave birth to Samuel. And a 1940 sentence listed her occupation as a maid, which, by the way, was one of the few occupations black women were allowed to have at that time. Samuel Little has said that his father was a 19-year-old named Paul McDowell, but it sounds like he wasn't involved in his life much at all. Little has claimed that his mother was a sex worker who, as a teenager, abandoned him as an infant by the side of the road. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but it's probably how he felt abandoned. Sam, or as his family called him, Sammy, was raised mostly by his paternal grandmother, Fannie Mae McDowell, in Lorain, Ohio. Lorain, Ohio is a suburb of Cleveland, and both cities saw large increases in their black population during the second half of the Great Migration, which took place from 1940 to 1970. Um, By the way, foreshadowing... Uh, uh, if I was going to take a test on Samuel Little and this was the text, I would highlight everything Beth just said. <laughs> anyway, Sammy, Sammy was trouble, was a troubled teen who didn't do well in school. At the age of 13, he was reportedly committed to the Boys Industrial School, a reformatory for teenage boys in Lancaster, southeast of Columbus. His booking card listed him under the last name of his grandparents, McDowell, and said he was there for stealing. Uh, He later said that he had stolen a bike. His IQ was listed as 96. Is that high? It's average. It's regular? Yeah, it's regular. Yeah. By the time Sammy was released to his grandparents in September of 1955, he had racked up 47 disciplinary reports. Most of the other boys averaged one or two. He eventually dropped out of school while he was in junior high. According to Little, he began having sexual fantasies about strangling women as a child, starting when he saw his kindergarten teacher touch her neck. He also said that as a teenager, he collected true crime magazines depicting women being choked. And by the way, I didn't realize there was true crime magazines in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? People have been fascinated with true crime since like day one. (laughs) Since the beginning of time. Since the caveman days. It's nothing that. I mean, it's it's, we have a lot of um, resources now to. um, There's a lot of venues where we can enjoy. Partake in true crime stories and stuff like that but there was like yellow journalism way back when and um when jack the ripper was active like people just gobbled that up you know really i didn't realize that people were into it at the time oh yeah that i I mean why wouldn't they be i don't know i mean i know i would be (laughs) i know i would i don't know about y'all but me um but i just think that's so cool um that this genre is um it's it's uh, it's almost it's it's almost i feel like it's a mark of our humanity yeah Yeah, (laughs) Um, i think so too fascination with it yeah so i think so too it's just just what i'm gonna say i think even though i am a sick fuck but (laughs) i believe this makes me human yes On November 29, 1956, when he was just 16, Little was arrested for burglary in Omaha, Nebraska. After serving time for that at a youth authority, he was released. A few months later, he was arrested again for breaking and entering. He then served time at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. 
He was paroled from Mansfield after a few years, but then sent back in October 1961 for breaking into an abandoned furniture warehouse in Illyria. He was paroled from Mansfield again in December of 1964. Mansfield was closed by court order in 1990 due to overcrowding and inhumane conditions. You don't say. Of course, yes. Uh, the prison is best known as the filming location for the Shawshank Redemption. Yep. What? I knew oh you'd like that Oh my God, I love that fact. Oh, oh my God, I'm hugging myself because that just brings me so much joy. I love that movie. Mm. Samuel Little grew to be six foot three, and it's been remarked by more than one person, many people actually, that he had very large hands and they were perfect for strangling. Oh, Grandma, what big <laughs> hands you have. Oh, yes, my dear. The better to strangle you with. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I thought of that. Sorry, um, forgive me. Yeah, I'm well. terrible. So now it's time to dive into the timeline. So from the time Little dropped out of school and left his Ohio home in the late 1950s, he lived a nomadic life. He lived out of his car and would shoplift and steal to gather the money to buy alcohol. Drugs! Doing uh, but drugs! Doing drugs. <laughs> but he never stayed in one place for too long. Little was arrested again in 1966 for assault and battery after attacking a woman in Cleveland. Around this time, he got married in Lorraine, but uh, we don't know her name, and the union did not last. In his late 20s, Little went to live with his mother, who had moved to Florida. There, he reportedly worked at the Dade County Department of Sanitation, at a cemetery, and as an ambulance attendant. Interesting jobs. Yeah. Um, it was in Miami. By the way, I would love to work at a cemetery or a mortuary. Um, can I... you imagine Beth and Wendy funeral home? <laughs> <laughs> I had thought about at one time working at a mortuary. Me too. But, oh my God, we yeah. have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, uh, now I think I don't think I could, I don't think I could handle it. Hmm. All the sadness. Yeah. Oh, geez, I forgot about that part. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Because I, I actually would be hard <laughs> when my mom died. Um, the funeral home was just really good. And they, yeah. they helped a lot. And I was yeah. like, oh, I want to help people, too. And then <laughs> later on, I was like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I do. I do want to help people. I wish, you know, I want to comfort people and stuff. But I think it would get to me. Yeah. It, yeah. I, maybe it would be. But I, 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 I've, I've had this thought since I was a teenager um, of this, you know, having having a funeral home. And I know that um, be, segregation is uh, it's it's as American as apple pie. Even the cemeteries were segregated. So right, there are right. many funeral homes that are still operating today that um, when they were segregated, catered to only black to people black only people, yeah. um, because they weren't allowed to be buried in white cemeteries. Right. Um, and I, I just think it's a cool um, aspect of, of American history that I, I, I would love um, to be a part of that tradition in a right. weird way. Right. Um, I feel weird saying this out loud. I'm almost embarrassed. Like I just, um, I don't know. I feel silly um, saying that out loud. Anyway, don't pay attention to me. <laughs> it was in Miami in the early morning hours of New Year's Day, 1971, that Little committed his first confirmed murder. He met Mary Brosley at a bar on New Year's Eve, 1970. In the early hours of 1971, they drove to a deserted stretch of road near the Florida Everglades, where Little Little strangled Mary to death and then buried her in a shallow grave. Hey, by the way, it doesn't look like he had any military service. No. Nope. Didn't have to serve in Vietnam. Not, not that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Between 1957 and 1975, Little, who sometimes went by the name Samuel McDowell, was arrested by police officers 26 times in 11 states, including Ohio, Maryland, Florida, Massachusetts, California, Oregon, Philadelphia, New wow. Jersey, Arizona, <laughs> Illinois, and Georgia. I've been everywhere, man. I've, I've been, been everywhere, everywhere, man. Ohio, Maryland, man. Oh, my God. That's a lot of states to yeah. get locked up by the police. Yep. Woo. And charges included shoplifting, theft, assault, rape, aggravated assault on a police officer. DUI. Hello. 
fraud, breaking and entering, and solicitation. During his stints in the penitentiary, he started boxing and he learned to draw. In 1971, he met Aurelia Jean Dorsey in a Cleveland jail. The jail was reportedly so run down that inmates could talk through holes in the walls and ceilings. A woman 30 years his senior little later said that Jean was quote unquote, no beauty. But he admired her loyalty and her shoplifting skills. She had a set of skills. Uh, <laughs> and the two took up together. To make money, Jean Dorsey would shoplift and Little would fence the goods. Little later described Jean Dorsey as a shoplifting expert, his traveling companion, oh. and a surrogate mother. Little referred to her as his quote-unquote old lady. As they traveled from state to state, Little and Dorsey settled into a routine. After Dorsey went to bed, Little went out to hunt for victims. Mm. From Little's later confessions, it seemed as though Dorsey was never involved with any of the murders, although it had been reported that she often cleaned his car, which many times was the murder scene, so she may have been aware of what he was up to. It's also been reported that he often beat her, so if she was aware, it would be no wonder why she would not say anything about it. Yeah, and she was, uh, so he was like 30, when they met and sh she was 30 years older than him. So she was like 60. Wow. So, okay. You know, okay. yeah, um, she was probably, well, 60 is not that old, but um, no. you know, since I'm, I'm but comparatively 60. Yeah. <laughs> Com compared but, to but you're, you're just not as, as spry as you yeah. are when you're younger. So yeah. yeah, she was vulnerable. Yeah. But I bet I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of wisdom there. Also, um, it is interessante. Oh, I lost my thought. What were we just talking about? Oh, I know. Uh, you mentioned abandonment earlier. Oh, and his yeah. Mom, his mom, um, he felt abandoned her. So it, it kind of makes sense that he would latch or onto connect somebody who onto somebody loyal older and, and yes, loyal yeah. and maternal. Yes. 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 That does make a lot of sense. Yep. So Little's grandmother, Fannie Mae McDowell, died in 1972, followed by his mother, Bessie Mae, in 1973. And uh, no article that I found mentioned anything about how that affected Samuel. Mm. Well, it sounds like from interviews, which I'm sure by now many of us have all seen interviews of Samuel Little. Yeah. He only tells you what he wants, wants you, to, you know, to hear. Right. Yeah. And so and who knows that might, if that's true or not. Yeah. And yeah. so that might be a vulnerability of his yeah. and why he didn't bring it up. Yeah. He does. He never really talks about his mom or his grandmother, he, at least that I've seen. Um, yeah. It may be that he talked about them, but that didn't get aired because nobody cares. But I care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly interested. Yes, but it also reminds me of the interviews we've seen of him where he um, does not want to be referred to as a rapist. Right. Yes. Like. I am this, so yeah. I'm going to talk to you about this, this. part. I yeah. will shut the Not fuck the up part. if you try to tell me that I yeah. am something other than right. what I tell you that I am. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it just seems like one of those things, if if it did affect him, he kept it real He's close to the He's not going to tell you about it, yeah. Mm -hmm. On January 18th, 1975, the body of a woman was found in a wooded area in eastern Knox County, Tennessee, by two hunters. She was bruised and nude from the waist down. Her pantyhose and girdle bunched around her knees. Her purse and some of her jewelry were missing. Her body appeared to have been dragged into the woods and dumped behind a pine tree. The woman was identified as Martha Cunningham, 34, who had last been seen on New Year's Eve of 1974, heading to an evening prayer service at her church. Martha was a talented singer and pianist who grew up performing with her parents, Mary and Clyde Lane, and her six younger siblings in a gospel group known as the Happy Home Jubilee Singers. Ooh, that just sounds like it would be fun. a fun group to listen <laughs> yeah. to. Mm. Uh, despite the evidence at the scene, within a day of the discovery, detectives attributed Martha's death to natural causes. What woman goes to the <laughs> goes to the woods to die and takes all her clothes and takes off? All of her clothes yeah. off? No. Uh, the no, medical no woman. <laughs> I I'm sorry. The medical examiner really fucked this one up. Um, but their investigative report lists the probable cause of death as unknown. Um, so quick side note about medical examiners' offices in the United States: they're problematic because they make mistakes that lead to inaccurate conclusions about a crime such as this, and it leads to crimes not being solved. 
um, people getting off, um, the wrong people getting convicted. And like many things in America, ME's offices are bad players in a really fucked up system. Not all ME's are um, medical examiners are board certified in forensic pathology. And there is a, apparently a huge a shortage of forensic pathologists huh. qualified to be Should have gone into that. Yeah. Well, it, it, part of it has to do with the training because you have to go to regular medical school. Mm. Then you have to do a residency. And then I think you also have to do a fellowship, oh, which is okay. like an extra few years. Right. So it's a lot of school. It's a lot of debt. Um, and many municipalities that need to fill these important roles with somebody qualified just don't have there, there's just nobody. not enough people. Yeah. Uh, but that also means that the person who does get the job and whose job it is to determine how people die and gets the final say so on if a death is a homicide, a suicide, or an accident or natural causes, isn't a doctor and isn't qualified to do it. Yeah. yeah. So there it's a go. nightmare. Mm-hmm. On September 11th, 1976, in Sunset Hills, Missouri, a woman began banging on the back door of a home, crying for help. She was naked below the waist with her hands bound behind her back with an electrical cord and cloth. When the police arrived, the woman, who identified herself as Pamela K. Smith, told officers that she was picked up by a man in St. Louis. She said he choked her from behind with an electrical cord, forced her into his car, beat her unconscious, and then drove to Sunset Hills and raped her. Officers found Little, then 36, still seated in his car near the home. What with Pamela's jewelry and clothing inside? Little denied raping the woman, telling officers, quote, I only beat her, <laughs> unquote. It's oh, so it's my all right. God. I just yeah. beat a lady. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and next, next question. Uh, in December of 1976, Little was found guilty of assault with the intent to ravish rape. And that's a new charge I haven't yeah. seen. And was sentenced to three months in county jail. That has to be rape? one of those old timey things. Wow. Ravish raped. I Ravish guess so. Rape. I wonder yeah. if that's just a name that they gave to black men. Because that's white men's worst fear. Is, Ravish. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> think of Birth of a Nation where yeah. rather than getting raped, the the white lady jumps off Killed a cliff. The, yeah. yeah. Then getting raped by a black yeah. man. Um, yeah. Anyway. A detective who later reviewed the Smith case believes that Little may have pleaded to a lesser charge and received a shorter sentence because of the victim's lifestyle. The case file refers to Pamela as a heroin addict who often failed to appear in court. What does that matter? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, <laughs> um, yeah, they, that's they're the just goes. evaluating the, the victim. Yeah, but it also sounds victim blamey. Oh, yeah, no? that's what I meant. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Evaluating her as a person. Devalue. I thought you said evaluating. I'm sorry. Oh no, devaluing. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. You know, sometimes right. we do these episodes, and I think you say one thing, and then when I'm editing, I'm like, oh, that's what she said. <laughs> that's funny oh my gosh let me make sure these headphones are in my actual ears wait they don't go on your forehead um uh, so on august 16th 1982 the body of rosie hill was found in the woods in ocala florida she had been strangled to death she had last been seen leaving a bar with a man Little later said that he was almost caught when he killed Rosie when a police officer came up to his car after he'd strangled her to death. Little jumped out of the car and pretended like he and his lady friend had just been caught in a sexual act. Meanwhile, Rosie lay dead in the car. The officer was looking for burglary suspects, so after seeing a naked woman in the car, he just told Little to move along and left the scene. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> In September of 1982 in Pascagoula, did I say that right? Pascagoula, so. Mississippi. Am I crooked letter? I am I crooked letter, crooked letter, I crooked letter, crooked letter, humpback, humpback, I. <laughs> a woman named Melinda Rose LaPree went missing after getting into a brown wooded panel station wagon with a man. Wooded panel station wagon. Just the idea of it makes me smile. Anyway, <laughs> this is not a, a smiling story. Mindy has been described as brilliant and a musical genius who could teach herself to play any instrument she wanted. But her mother died when she was just seven and her father had become extremely abusive. So as a teenager, Mindy decided to run away from the abuse and ended up in Pascagoula. There, she started doing drugs. Doing drugs. Doing drugs. While her boyfriend, quote, pimped her out for money, unquote. 
despite attempts to get her to return home, uh, and I believe it was her siblings who were trying to get her to come home, she she stayed in Pascagoula doing odd jobs, even working on shrimp boats, as well as selling drugs and engaging in sex work. Shortly before her death, she gave birth to a son. Doing all the things she could to survive. Um. Police initially wrote off Mindy's disappearance because of her lifestyle, which is basura. Yeah. What lifestyle? She's a try a child essentially trying to survive yeah. in a really, really um, hard world. Yeah. Um, this understandably infuriated M- Mindy's brother Bob. And in October of 1982, skeletal remains were found in a Gautier, Mississippi cemetery. Bob says that he had to push for testing on the body, which was just sitting in a morgue. But after work with an anthropologist and through the use of dental records, Bob LaPree learned that the body was, in fact, his sister. In November of 1982, Little was arrested for shoplifting in Pascagoula, and police realized that he matched the description of the suspect in Mindy LaPree's murder. And during the investigation, two sex workers came forward to allege that Little had assaulted them in Pascagoula in 1980 and in 1981. The first to tell her story was a woman who was living in the Carver Village neighborhood in Pascagoula in 1980. The woman said she was working along a street known as The Front, where sex workers gathered to keep an eye out for each other for safety reasons. It was a hot night in July when she said Little picked her up outside of a nightclub. She took him back to her place in the village. As soon as he shut the door, the woman said Little grabbed her neck and started choking her before he knocked her unconscious. When she came to, Little was on top of her, beating and choking her. She passed out and then woke up with her body submerged in her tub and naked with the exception of a scarf around her neck. She said the man used the lace scarf to yank her head in and out of the water. Oh, jeez. Playing with her like a toy. Yeah. Punching her when he pulled her and then forcing her back oh underwater. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. She told authorities she lost consciousness and woke later to find herself in the hospital and unable to talk or communicate. She initially reported she was attacked by a burglar because her parents came to the hospital and she didn't want them to know what she was doing for a living. That's really um, sad. It is. The other woman was in her 20s and selling shoes out of her car and resorting to sex work to make money. In November of 1981, about a week before Thanksgiving, a man in a station wagon with wood paddling, later identified as Little, offered to pay her $50 for sex. The woman got into Little's car and before she knew it, the man cold cocked her in the back of the head and then punched her again between the eyes and started choking her. The woman said she managed to escape a couple of times, but Little would catch her and drag her back to the station wagon. That's that's horrifying. That's horrifying. Um, At one point, she said a young boy on a bicycle saw them outside the car and he asked if she was okay. Little claimed she was his wife and was drunk. She couldn't speak because of the relentless choking. Eventually, the woman said she escaped through a cargo area in the back of the car and ran across US 90 until she made it back to the village. She said some people took her to the hospital, but she never filed a police report. In 1982, Little was arrested in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and charged with the murder of 22-year-old Melinda Rose LaPrey and the assault of the two sex workers. All right, y'all, that's where we are going to end it this week. We told y'all we tackled this one and it's, it's, it's a a long one. It's a long one. So we hope that you will come back next week to find out what happens next. But now it's time to get into how not to get murdered. So it's been a while since I sang this. It is. (laughs) I forgot the words. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So I started following at Chelsea Cayenne, spelled hmm. uh, C-H-E-L-S-E-A-K-Y-A-N-N on TikTok. Okay. And she gives amazing, quick self-defense 
video tips. And anyone who doesn't want to get murdered should follow. Okay. Um, So that's at subscribe at at Chelsea Cayenne. Um, And she has a specific video that must have popped into my feed because, you know, our phones are watching us and listening to us and reading our minds. Yeah. Yeah, So I knew that I was researching the Sam Little case. uh, And there was a lot of there's a whole lot of choking going on in in this in this in this Mm -hmm. one. So she talks about what to do if you are choked. And the instinct is to try to grab the wrists or hands of the person who's choking you to get them off. But she said, don't do that. Keep she said, keep your. Uh, don't she said don't keep your chin high and your neck exposed instead tuck your chin and shrug your shoulders high then uh karate chop those arms down um and away from you um so that way you protect your neck and you also give yourself time to get away okay um uh, just the, the follow is Chelsea Cayenne, but I did find a link. So I'll put a link in the description box. So All you right. can see the video too. Sweet. Um, thank yeah, you. Cause Anybody? I think I need to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to, this is an audio medium. And yeah. so it's a little hard to describe. To explain. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What's going um, on. but once you see it, you'll be like, Oh my God, uh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, God forbid you don't have to, but yeah. anyway, Good to uh, know, so though. now it is a shout out time where we shout out any content by people of color or any marginalized folks or any, um, true crime goodies. Okay. Uh, so I have two, um, true crime, and um, BIPOC adjacent, uh, a podcast called Reclaimed about Mammy Till, Emmett Till's mother. And the podcast recounts Mammy's early life, her son's early life, and uh, as well as the horrific murder. And then after which, you know, she made the decision to say, I'm going to open casket. Right. We need to show the world what they have done to my baby. Yeah. And it kicked off this the whole civil rights movement in the United States in the mid-1950s. And then it gets to kind of the, the woman she became after the lynching of her baby. Wow. And then, uh, so that's reclaimed. And then uh, the second one is, speaking of crimes, uh, will be wild. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a good have one. Have you? <gasps> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just discovered it. Yeah. Oh. Oh my awesome. God. Yeah. It is a an eight part series about the forces that led to Coachella, aka <laughs> January 6th. <laughs> and I was riveted. Yeah, it's really oh good. Oh my God. Anyway, so what do you got, Beth? <laughs> well, I wanted to shout out Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus. Oh. So it's another Star Trek franchise. Love uh, but it. it's but it's the most similar to the original series than any other spin-off that I've seen. And it, Goldberg's in this one too? No, no. Oh. <laughs> That's not the original series. That one's uh Next, Next Generation? Generation. Yeah. So oh. the original series, the one the one with uh Kirk and Spock, you know. Got you. Yeah, oh. yeah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So it's it's the most similar like to that show that uh, any of any other spinoff. Um, okay. I think it's it's really okay. good. It's okay. my favorite show right now. It's okay. a it's a prequel to the original series. So mm. Uhura is a cadet in the series. And, oh my god! Yeah. And, oh my god! <laughs> you know, black girls everywhere love, love Uhura. Everybody Uhura. loves Uhura. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And even Martin Luther girl, she was gonna quit the show. I she heard Martin about King. that. He she talked Martin Luther her King into. Said, yeah, Not you quitting. can't quit this show. My yeah. daughters love this show. <laughs> oh my god! So and there, oh. there are other characters who are people of color, and and it's just I I just love it. And oh, uh, so yeah, I I want to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> soon as you get off of the microphone, you can as go watch soon, it. Ooh, what sleep? What? I don't have to go to work <laughs> tomorrow. <Sleep. laughs> No way. Okay, so that is Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus. Thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Um, will be wild. Oh God, you guys, it is it wild. Is wild, yeah. <laughs> and uh, reclaimed. Uh, those are two podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Right um, golly. Well, so that's it for today. But we got more on this Samuel Little uh, matter. Yep. yep. Uh, come when back we come next back week. next week. Yep. But in the meantime, where can the people find us, Beth? 
Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. So this is a weekly podcast. Do you know what a podcast is? Um, And new episodes drop every Thursday. Do you know what a Thursday is? Uh, So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.